Hello and welcome to another episode of the Chinese History Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Yiming Ha. Today's guest is Professor George L. Israel, a professor of history at Middle Georgia State University. His research is primarily on Ming intellectual history and Neo-Confucianism, with a particular focus on the famous Ming Neo-Confucian philosopher Wang Yangming. He has published extensively about this subject in both English and Chinese, and he joins us today to talk about who Wang Yangming was and why he was so influential. Thank you, Professor Israel, for coming to the show. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. All right. So Wang Yangming is a very famous official and intellectual of the Ming Dynasty. He is probably known to the vast majority of Chinese people who undoubtedly learn about him in school. But here in the West, I think few people outside of the field of Chinese history and philosophy will probably have ever heard of him. So to begin. Can you introduce to our listeners who Wang Yangming was? You know, what was his career like? Okay, obviously, to introduce his entire biography would require quite a lengthy discussion. But let me just introduce some general issues. Actually, there's in fact a long history of writing about Wang Yangming and what he did in his capacity as an official. That actually began with a student of his by the name of Qian Dehong, who wrote what we call a chronological biography of him. And that has continued up to the present. There are literally hundreds of biographies of Wang Yangming in East Asian language, is, whereas, as you point out, there's very few in European ones. So to understand why these are important and why there are so many, you have to understand a few things about Wang Yangming's philosophy, his moral philosophy, some of his basic tenets. And I thought I'd just highlight a couple in that regard. One is the unity of knowledge and action, which if anybody's heard of Wang Yangming, they've probably heard about that. And basically, Wang says that if we can return to our sort of natural state or our original condition as human beings, we will find that we have a kind of inner light of moral knowledge. And based on that knowledge, our actions will flow quite spontaneously, naturally. This means that not only do we know right from wrong intrinsically, also when we know what is right, we'll do it. When we know what is wrong, we will not do it, we'll subdue it. Later in life, he developed this line of thinking into another tenet called realizing or extending our intuitive or innate moral sense of right and wrong. As we do so, Wang claimed, this sense will become ever more clear. Obviously, knowing the right thing to do is not so straightforward. But Wang insisted that we have this kind of innate ability to illuminate moral truth and that we can purify it by realizing it or actualizing it in our lives. Now, those who have realized this moral light in its purest form and always act according to it would be, for him, sages. Sagehood, then, is the goal. And Wang Yangming offered much advice about how to travel down the path to it. That was his version of what is known as the learning of the way. With respect to him, it's called the school of mind or the learning of the mind and heart. Since he's so heavily focused on moral introspection, on looking at ourselves, at our own hearts, at our own moral psychological life, his way has been categorized, as I've just said, the school of the mind and heart. Now, those who have written about Wang Yangming's political career do, of course, have this in mind when writing about him. Now, some will say that what he did as an official was an extension of his philosophy, reflected his philosophy. So they tend to idealize the actions he took, and they write in the mode of what we would call hagiography treating him as having achieved an ideal in ancient Titan that we call the unifying of sageliness within and kingliness without. 
Now, others have written more critically, especially those coming from, say, a, a Marxist perspective. Wang Yangming was, after all, a member of the educated elite in Ming China, and his political career involved conducting military campaigns to subdue armed disturbances and establish order among commoners. These scholars see his ideas as suited to curtailing the needs of the lower classes, and hence, perhaps, in some sense, as oppressive. In recent years, however, coverage has become more objective, less ideological. Now, as for his career and outline, Wang Yangming was born in 1472 to a gentry family in Yuyao. Now, this is a county located in the eastern end of Zhejiang province, near Ningbo, and hence close to the East China Sea. His father, whose name was Wang Hua, enjoyed a stellar career as an official. In 1481, he obtained the highest examination degree and placed first uh, on top of that. Now, that vaulted his father into a position at an important institution in Beijing called the Hanlin Academy. Now, that's where high officials often began their career. But for Wang Yangming, this meant that at a young age, he was rubbing elbows with the nation's elite, for his father brought him there to oversee his education. Now, eventually in 1499, at 27, after actually two failed attempts, Wang also obtained the highest degree. Thereafter, until 1517, and for about 18 years, he held numerous official positions at the capital, some at a secondary capital called Nanjing. He served as a magistrate in Jiangxi province for a time. Now, none of these were particularly high-ranking or demanding positions, but yet he did have a, an important official career in that regard. Nevertheless, I should mention that although he didn't have particularly significant positions, he could be quite hot-headed and outspoken, and that did get him into trouble. Now, when the Zhengde Emperor, who was the emperor from 1506 to 1521, Zhu Hojiao, came to the throne in 1506, he quickly revealed the preference for deferring to his eunuch companions inside the imperial palace, as well as border military commanders. Now, this led to widespread protests among officialdom, ongoing clashes between officials and eunuch cliques who were controlling the reins of power. Some officials were arrested for doing their duty to protest, to remonstrate, and Wang Yangming got involved. He wrote a memorial to the emperor in protest. He too was arrested. Then he was lashed 40 times in front of the imperial palace. Following, he was imprisoned for a month and then banished to a lowly post in Guizhou. Now, this is a province located in the southwest, very remote, an undeveloped place. So what does this have to do with political career? You can imagine how humiliating and psychologically traumatic this must have been. His whole identity, his persona must have been shattered. Indeed, after arriving at that postal station, it's called Longchang, it's located in Xiuwan County. As he had done in the past, he turned to some kinds of like meditative practices to calm his mind and search for insight. He would uh, engage in what's called quiet city, okay? He appears to have experienced some kind of enlightenment as a consequence. And after that, this is around 1508, 1509, after that, he came up with what remained some of his principal tenets. He determined that our mind-heart, if you want to call that our heart, our mind, is identical to what in Neo-Confucian tradition they call Tianli. It's been translated in many ways. Some say heaven's principle or pattern. Some say nature's order. 
As well, he taught the principle of the unity of knowledge and action that I just mentioned. He did this in 1509. He taught these ideas at a local academy. This became a pattern for the rest of his uh, life, as I'll mention later on. Okay. What he decided to do is try to reform politics by turning to education and thereby set a movement in motion. So what was he teaching? I'm almost done with this part. It's a little complicated, but there's a theme here that's often missed. To say that my mind is identical to, say, heaven's pattern or nature's orders, to say this, the source of moral authority lays with me. This becomes a consistent position or a conviction for him. It is why he would later say that we are all sages. So he really moves the source of authority to the individual, to all people. Furthermore, something less discussed. You can see how this would be a challenge to political authority, potentially, say, the emperors. Another thing, Wang Yangming often spoke of how suffering and hardship are an essential element in the path to true learning and to discovering our hearts. He often said that we must reach the point where our concern for status, our desire to be recognized, our sensitivity to being ridiculed or belittled, we must overcome that. These things must no longer move us at all. That's the lesson that he took from being banished to this faraway place. So Wang Yangming calls for us to become, in a sense, absolutely independent, psychologically speaking. You could probably compare this to how Buddhists facilitate liberation by asking us to acquire insight into impermanence, okay? Things like status and so on, they're just temporary. In Wang Yangming's case, however, he drew inspiration from a pre-teen philosopher by the name of Mengzi, who likewise demonstrated a fierce independence. And indeed, for the rest of his life, Wang Yangming acted as he saw fit. He even at one point directly disobeyed the emperor's orders. The junk emperor was bad news, so it's probably not surprising. It's necessary. Now, as far as his assignments, his important career assignments, let me just mention a few and I'll be done. First, in 1516, he was assigned grand coordinator of Southern Gan. Now, this is Southern China, Southern Jiangxi, and basically a grand coordinator. Their job is to, they're given full authority to coordinate provincial level agencies. So he's placed in southern Jiangxi. He's going to give an authority over this region that includes northern Guangdong, part of southwest Fujian. The problem there is there's widespread disturbances, a lot of disorder. It's a region of China that's seen a lot of migration. There's a lot of sub-ethnic conflict, outlawry. It's weakly governed. So for two years, he goes in there, 15, 17, 15, 18, leads military campaigns, suppresses these. He establishes three county-level governments to establish a more permanent order. Uh, so in this case, historians look closely at what he did, his military strategies, the kinds of institutions he put in place. And that sort of gives us a sense how his philosophy played out in practice. Basically, it's a largely traditional means, communal in nature for establishing order. Now, next in 1519, owing to Zhu Ho Zhao's, the Jiangde Emperor's incompetence, there was this Ming prince located in northern Jiangxi, Jiangxi province. His name was Zhu Chunhao. I think he was like the great grandson of the founding emperor's 17th son. And he staged a rebellion, but he failed on account of he underestimated the significance of Wang Yangming's presence. He'd just been campaigning for two years and he was located in southern Jiangxi. So he quickly mobilized an army and subdued the prince in about, I don't know, 42 days or something like that. 
in terms of using stratagem, a lot of trickery went on. He was a fan of the military classics. He studied them. He wrote commentaries on them. And he also organized armies from the ground up. Secondly, throughout this time, he continued teaching his philosophy of mind and heart to his students. So this is an interesting thing. It's said that while he was campaigning, he was quite unfazed during the rebellion. One moment teaching, one moment handing out orders. Finally, in 1527, he was given an assignment as both grand coordinator and supreme commander. That means coordinating provinces to manage the problem of rebellions by native chieftains. These are are non-Chinese ethnic groups located in the south, southwest, province of Guangxi. He managed to work out a peaceable settlement with one group, but in the aftermath, he decided he needed to crush ongoing violence by peoples that were labeled as like Yao bandits. Uh, These campaigns were pretty brutal, a little bloody. In the aftermath, he put in place many measures to maintain order in the region. In this case, Historians look closely at how he went about integrating that part of China into the Ming state. So establishing control over like internal frontiers, border regions. I think Liu Xi, Professor Liu Xi has done a lot of work on this province in this regard. So some see a kind of civilizing process work, maybe even some kind of like colonizing process of work here. And so look at his philosophy in light of that. I know that was very long, but that's what I wanted to put out there. So I'm very interested in how he put his teaching or philosophy into practice, because to most people, philosophy tends to be very abstract. So it's very helpful to see these examples, practical examples of how they put their thought into action. And in particular, you just mentioned that at one point, Wyoming even disobeyed a direct order from the emperor. That's a pretty serious crime. Why wasn't he executed because of that? I think that he had some supporters in the court, one court in particular by the name of Zhong Yong, kind of, he ended up working out something with Zhong Yong. And originally the emperor wanted to come down and have, uh, come down from Beijing, down uh, to Nanjing, wanted the prince to be released. He wanted to reenact a military campaign. So he wanted to do it all over it. He wanted to be the hero and capture the prince. But what Wang Yangming did is he evaded these orders. I'm not going to say directly disobeyed, but evaded these orders that he worked out something with Zhong Yong, who was close enough to the emperor that he could mediate this conflict. He handed the prince over to Zhong Yong, who then took him to the emperor. Indirectly, he was, you can find letters, like he wrote letters to his father in 1511, where he's a you know, very critical emperor. And uh, so there's, there's a history of different interpretations of Wang Yangming. And some folks who are Wang Yangming fans who are very anti-authoritarian find inspiration in him. Others, just because of the measures he put in place to restore order, that kind of thing, find in him resources for institutional reform and, and nation building and state building and that kind of thing too. So there's different facets to him for sure. So my understanding of Neo-Confucianism is that at this time, the dominant school was the Chengzhu school of Neo-Confucianism, right? founded by the Cheng brothers, Cheng Yi, Cheng Hao, and then Zhu Xi. And this branch of Neo-Confucianism started to gain steam in the Southern Song. It was legalized, actually, by the Yuan dynasty, the Mongol Yuan. And in the Ming, this was continued as well. So how did Wang Yangming's branch of Neo-Confucianism differ from Zhu Xi's branch. And in particular, if, if Zhu Xi and his school of Neo-Confucianism was orthodox, 
or supposedly orthodox at this time? Why did Wang come to disagree with what Zhu Xi believed in? Yeah, this is this is a really good question, and I'll tell you what. Maybe the experts in Chinese philosophy could do a better job with the formal aspects of the philosophical differences between them. I have some thoughts and ideas. There's just a huge literature on this topic. It'd be quite abstract, but let me offer a few remarks about that. And maybe I'm going to be wandering around a little bit here, but just maybe from a historian's point of view. Now, first of all, you've mentioned Juxi, and in Juxi's time, there was another Song Dynasty Ruist or Confucian, if you want to say that, by the name of Lu Xiangshan. And Wang Yangming is often laced together with him. People often speak of the Lu Wang learning of the school of mind or learning of the mind at heart. And Lu Xiangshan is supposed to have influenced Wang Yangming a great deal, and they're said to bear important similarities. And indeed, on occasion, Wang Yangming did speak about Lu Xiangshan. And for example, like in 1520, okay, so he's down located in southern Jiangxi, still in the wake of those military campaigns and suppressing that princely rebellion. He's grand coordinator of Jiangxi, and he's speaking with a student down there named, by the name of Chen Jiotran. And here's what he says: Jiotran asks, "What do you think of the learning of Master Lu?" His teacher replied, "After Zhou Lianxi and Cheng Mingdao, you just mentioned Cheng Hao, there was only Xiangshan. It's just that he was a bit unrefined." So Jiu Chuan said, looking at his philosophical discourse, every essay speaks to the bones and marrow, and every sentence is like a needle jabbed in the heavy breath acupuncture point. I really don't see where he's unrefined. So Master Wang Yangming said he did indeed engage in moral self-cultivation, and in a way that is entirely different from those who conjecture, imitate, rely on, copy others, or search for answers by gauging in textual exegesis. But if you look closely, you will see the unrefined areas. After you put your efforts into this for a long time, you should see it. So what's he saying? From this passage, we could see two things. First, Wang Yangming wards against copying, conjecturing, exegesis, as did Lu. Indeed, throughout his life, Wang often asserted that an overemphasis on knowledgeability and interpreting texts may become an obstacle to understanding our mind and heart and the way. The learning of the ways he understood. This, of course, is a criticism directed towards Chengju Neo-Confucianism. As it's well known, the Song Dynasty Confucian Juicy had produced this grand synthesis, as you mentioned. It's reflected in commentaries he wrote on classical texts. Now, eventually, as you mentioned during the UN, and that became the curriculum for schooling. It was became a government orthodoxy to prepare for exams. You'd have to study these commentaries and. Of course, you'd have to take exams to serve in government, and hence to rise in society and to the halls of power. Of course, the goal of Jews' program was to direct people down the path to becoming virtuous, ultimately, hence towards sagehood. It is just that his program became associated with power, and that sort of drained it of its original intent. When people studied Jewsy, they were trying to pass exams, attain office, accrue status and prestige. And for Wang Yangming, this could be quite inimical. To realizing your sort of essential goodness, okay? He saw this, so Wang's kind of like, "Eh, braininess won't necessarily equal wisdom." He says this in various different ways. Knowing a lot may not translate into knowing how to realize the goodness inside you and radiate that. So down 1520, Wang he wrote a preface to a compilation of Lu's works, Lu Xiangshan's works, the Song Dynasty Ruist. He explains that wise emperors in ancient times drew a distinction. Between our self-centered self, our ego, and the way, 
what he calls the mind of the way. That's your genuine self, your mind and heart, your true self. Whereas the self-centered self is in danger, the latter is very subtle. So he's saying, you know, people normally fail to see their heart. But that for Wong, he says in this preface, that's your center. And your center is humaneness. Wong further describes this center, this humaneness as sincere love and empathy, such as Wang Yang Ming's humanistic message. So this is what he also calls our intuitive knowledge of the good, which he asks us to realize and extend to others. Unfortunately, as he saw it, the simple and easy teaching, which he traced from ancient times to the present, remained obscured. And he placed part of the blame for that on juicy system, which he believed had become a bit too scholastic to bring it out clearly. And so the way he goes about this is he overturns Juicy's commentaries on various texts, like The Great Learning. He offers, this was a key text in Juicy's program. So what Wang Yangming does instead is he says, Juicy's version of this text is incorrect. His arrangement of it, it emphasizes investigating things and extending knowledge. It's too intellectualistic, okay? So Wang Yangming recovers an, an earlier edition, what's called the ancient edition. And he says, this edition stressed being sincere, being truthful, or what's called establishing your sincerity. And so in this case, Wang Ming sort of offers a different interpretation of the great learning, which stresses, again, moral introspection as the starting point for everything we do with respect to gathering knowledge and allowing that to determine how we act in our lives. The version I heard, like one of the popular stories that people often tell is that, well, Zhu Xi has this part of his philosophy is the investigation of things go. And the story goes that Wang Yangming was trying to learn this and he was looking at bamboo, like investigating bamboo, and, and he couldn't figure out Juxi's ideals. And that was when he realized that, well, Juxi doesn't really make any sense. Is that a true story? Yeah, it is. The dating for this has been up for grabs. There's some the scholars in China argue over whether it took place in the 1490s or late 1480s. Uh, regardless, that would have mean that it would have happened when Wang Yangming was in his teens or perhaps uh, around 20 or so. Uh, it is a true story, as you stated. He took Juicy's idea that everything has a principle and that you could uh, figure out what the principle with respect to that object is by investigating it closely. So he seemed to combine this with his understanding of contemplative practices, like sitting in meditation. So you're right. He sat in front of a bamboo. This was like a hall out in front of, I can't remember what this was. So I have to look that up. But um, for several days, then afterwards, he, nothing came out of it. He failed to obtain any insight. So he felt depressed about this and didn't think he had what it took to become a sage. So then he threw his efforts into preparing for the exams, literary composition, and those kinds of things. So that is a true story. And in fact, that was a point I abbreviated things here. But even though uh, Wang Yaming is often talked about with respect to Lu in terms of the similarity to philosophy, and that is there must be a simpler and easier way to become a moral person. All right. Juicy's requirements are a little bit too extensive. The fact of the matter is throughout his life, he was really struggling with Juicy's philosophy. That's who he really talks about the most. He, he didn't talk about Lucy Alexander all that much. Okay, so the few things that he did write were often directed at him. And you just gave one of the earliest examples, uh, a kind of life-changing moment uh, for him in that regard. It's very interesting to think that he took this quite literally and just sat in front of a bamboo for, for several days to try to figure it out. We just talked about how Zhu Xi and his teachings by this point was state orthodoxy. 
and it was required for the civil service exams. And yet here we have Wang Yaoming coming out and saying Zhu Xi is wrong in, in these regards, and he gives his own understanding of how things should be. So how was his school of Neo-Confucianism received in the Ming Dynasty? Okay, that's another great question. In the 16th century, Wang Yangming's school of mind, some call it Yangmingism, dominated the intellectual scene up to the 1570s or so. The story goes something like this. After the situation, the Ming court became more favorable to him. The eunuch that brought him down was named Liuji. He in turn was brought down in 1510. Wang Yangming was able to return to Beijing, but he remained disenchanted with politics. And of course, that starts at the top with the emperor's behavior, who'd be criticized. But also, of course, what he saw as the poisonous conduct that was rampant among officialdom as a whole. So his strategy, as I mentioned before, was to leverage his own status and authority to attract a following of students, and then to try to foster an educational movement. Now, the goal of that was to reorient up-and-coming scholars and scholar officials towards the original intent of the learning of the way of sagehood. I.e., in other words, developing one's ability to realize and act upon your moral nature. I've written about this a bit. There's a professor in Taiwan, Yang Zhengxian, who's also looked at this. You have Zhao Kun at Wuhan University, just wrote a good book on this. The point is, wherever Wang Yangming went, he taught. He would hold what are called Jiangxie events. And Jiangxie literally means like discussing learning, but they're just like discussion forums, philosophical forums. You have a Confucian master speaking holding discussions with whomever wants to attend. It might be friends, colleagues, younger scholars. And actually, for the most part, it was younger scholars. For these scholars, of course, their motives for attending varied. Some are like true believers. They wanted to pledge discipleship to Wang Yangming. They did so, or they would do so soon thereafter. Others were trying to make connections. You have to realize that at this time, the volume of candidates trying to move through the examination system was swelling. Uh, but the number of degrees given out, the number of official positions remained rather stagnant. So there's like this growing pool of young men looking for more ways to advance themselves in this very competitive environment. And one way to do so was to cultivate ties with a Confucian master and an established scholar official. And that's what Wang Yaoming was. And he was also making ways with his unusual ideas. Okay. So when he's in Beijing, he cultivated a following. Then afterwards, he was in a place called Chuzhou and Nanjing from 1513 to 1515. Southern Jiangxi, 1517 to 1520. Then back home at Shaoxing, 1522 to 1527. In each of those cases, you have to imagine a situation where he goes to a temple or he goes to an academy, a private academy, and there's a big gathering. And the attendance there could be dozens. It could reach in the hundreds, as it did when he was at his, in his hometown of Shaoxing. And there you go. So he's got a gathering of young literati around him. He's promoting these ideas. And he's really trying to bring about a movement, an educational movement that he thinks will eventually impact politics. So he's actually developed quite a fan base in this regard, a, a large discipleship. So in the wake of his death and up through the 1570s, his first generation followers and then followers of his followers continued doing this, holding these forums to talk about his ideas, their own takes on his ideas. They would renovate academies for this purpose, erect shrines to him, print his works for dissemination. Of course, the extent and success of their endeavors, however, were quite politically dependent. So at first, periodically, Wang Yangming would fall out of favor say, with the emperor, with the Jiajing emperor, because he became quite popular. His ideas could be a little anti-authoritarian. He grew a crowd around him. So the emperor was a little jealous of him and kind of proscribed his learning. 
Now, what sort of would help in that regard depended on who was around the emperor. And some of the people who are around the emperor over time might be followers of Wang Yangming, others not. They're called grand secretaries, which is the highest advisory position, the coordinated institution of the Ming Empire. So when Wang Yangming's students or admirers became grand secretaries, the movement might flourish. And this is what happened. For example, there was this grand secretary by the name of Yan Song. Now, no, there's not really a Wang Yangming follower. He's a corrupt politician, but he didn't mind the, supporting the movement indirectly. Another one was named by the name of Su Jie. So, for example, after 1552, when Su Jie, a close friend to many of Wang Yangming's most serious disciples, became a grand secretary along with them. Uh, like those disciples, Ouyang de Nia it would organize these large forums in Beijing, and the attendance there would number in the in, in the thousands. Okay, so I'm just going to say during the 16th century, the school of mind was quite active, quite dominant, and then over time, it it, it diminished a bit for several reasons. I will look at in a, in a moment here. Was Wang Yangming ever worshipped in the Confucian temple? I know that was a place where a lot of, not just Confucius, but a lot of eminent Confucian philosophers of later ages were also worshipped. Did Wang Yangming ever get in, into the temple? Actually, he was treated pretty badly at the end of his life uh, because there's a political faction at the Ming court that didn't want him to, to rise to higher office and end up in Beijing. And uh, also the, the uh, Jiajing emperor became somewhat jealous of him because of the admiration that people had for him and his growing following. So after he died, basically, all kinds of accusations were raised against him that he had, for example, conspired with the Ming prince whose rebellion he'd suppressed, originally conspired with him and then defeated his rebellion, uh, that he'd left his post unauthorized, that he was propagating false doctrines, these kinds of things. So right after he died, actually, honors or any kind of posthumous honors were denied to him. And also his title of nobility was removed. And so it wasn't actually until after the Jiajing Emperor's reign, during the reign of the uh, Longqing Emperor, which runs from about 1567 to 1572, that this issue was addressed because the Longqing Emperor issued an edict asking that high officials who you know, had not been properly awarded posthumously be looked at again. And Wang Yanming was looked at again, and all these accusations were cleared out. And so he was posthumously awarded and also his title of nobility was returned to be inherited hereditarily. And then during the Wiley Emperor's reign, right at the beginning of that, this whole issue of which Ming Confucian should be enshrined in the Confucian temple was raised and addressed at the Ming court. And eventually at the end of 1573, I believe it was 1573, that the Wanli Emperor issued a imperial rescript authorizing his being enshrined in the Confucian temple, although it took another, I think, nine years or so until after Zhang Zhudong, the Grand Secretary, died. That finally happened. He was enshrined along with three other Ming Confucians. So that's kind of the story of his treatment over the course of the 16th century. I see. So what about after the 1570s, going into the late Ming and uh, also into the succeeding Qing dynasty, how did Wang Yangming and his school of mind fare? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there's a lot of different ways to look at this. Jiangsui movement I talk about persisted into, say, the 1570s or so. And then there was an official at the Ming court by the name of Zhang Zhang, who didn't like this sort of the seeming like factionalism that the Wang Yangmingists could introduce to politics. He wanted more discipline, centralized power, that kind of thing. And so he prescribed those kind of lecture form activities. And that had a dampening effect on the movement. Nevertheless, we should say that as far as the reception and influence of Yangmingism, a substantial body of scholarship has accrued around Lightning intellectuals 
were influenced by Wang Yangming, like Li Zhi. And this scholarship demonstrates that the movement that originated as the commitment to his teachings actually worked with other late Ming trends, like social, cultural, and economic trends to lead to sort of changing literati identities and reconfiguration of the norms for human relationships. Now, like my own advisor, uh, Dr. Jochi Rong, he's looked at these intellectual and cultural trends over the years in his works. And what he identified was a changing ethic, one associated with the Wang Yangming movement, an ethic that lay emphasis on authenticity, spontaneity, friendship, the well-being of the self, the quotidian, values that served to loosen the constraints placed on the individual as a consequence of their social status. Okay, so this is one lightning trend where sort of his ideas about the nature of subjectivity, individual independence, that kind of thing have a broader impact, perhaps. However, this kind of change is going into the late Ming to the Qing dynasty. There's some trends that come about that have a further dampening effect. And historians have taken a close look at what became of the school of Wang Yangming during the Ming-Qing transition and then during the Qing dynasty itself. Now, a lot of work is going on here. But in general, the movement he inspired faded out or it was replaced by other trends. We could just say that Ming cultural change inspired by Wang Yangming's school of mind maybe persisted in just subtle ways, as I just mentioned, culturally speaking. But politics plays a role in this too. As I mentioned, well, this is 1579. This is during the Wanli Emperor's reign. There's this powerful official, Zhang Chujang, who represses the movement, closes the academies where much of this activity took place. But other things are happening too. We see a revival of Buddhism in popular and elite forms. The, the, the educated elite turn their energies to, say, marketing their writing in a growing commercial economy. Others become more preoccupied with matters of administration. Others turn back to Chengdu Neo-Confucianism. So there's a lot of different trends at play here, and the Wang Yangmingism kind of fades out. And during the Qing dynasty, such movements, as we saw during the Ming, like the academy movement, where literati uses them as a physical space for advancing their agendas, the Qing dynasty prohibited such activities. But also during the Ming-Qing transition, the troubles that the late Ming saw, the Manchu invasion, this kind of correlates with a major shift in the way scholarship is conducted. The intelligence of the late Ming, they felt they're in a state of crisis. They're looking for reasons for the cause of decline. They reevaluate the past and a lot of blame is thrown at Wang Yangming and his supposed intuitionism. Supposedly this philosophy had the impact of throwing out norms. And so scholars set out again in search of the true teachings of the ancients and for a more reliable version of the tradition, Confucian tradition. So we hear example about, for example, about how Gu Yanwu, he's a 17th century Ming-Qing scholar, he's said to represent a new spirit of inquiry that emerges in the early Qing. And he attacks the Wang Yangming school of Neo-Confucianism. He accuses it of subjectivity. He believes it scorns book learning. There's too much empty speculation, too much emphasis on moral introspection. He thought this debilitated the intelligentsia. So he embraces a new methodology that's known as evidential research, or eventually what's called hand learning. For him, investigating things should be more about looking directly at the world's condition, real world problems, not about engaging in these meditations on human nature and the mind. So he believed that we should engage in more tangible subjects, phonetics, historical geography, all these kinds of things, statecraft. And after his time, this kind of 
focus on evidential research became the order of the day. And it was kind of believed if we go back to the classics and uncover their timeless wisdom through textual research, we'll find moral truth in a different way. And we'll find it in a way that it exists objectively. And we can use that to reform institutions. So as it said, the Song Ming learning of the way traditional moral philosophy, on the one hand, gives way to a scholarship focused on institutions, history, governing, this critical methodology for studying texts called hand learning or evidential scholarship. I see. So I guess there was a confluence of different factors that when combined really put the Wyoming school into decline, starting from the late Ming and going into the Qing. Yeah, there really is the confluence of factors. Now, I should mention something here, because although some scholars have seen a, a pretty serious disjuncture between the Ming mode of learning, as you'd see it in, in the school of mind, and this kind of hand learning or evidential scholarship that dominated during the Qing, others have seen continuity between the Ming and the Qing. So there's an ongoing scholarly debate in this regard that goes back for decades. But one thing that I, I should mention here is that newer scholarship and ongoing research is revisiting this idea that the learning of the mind declined and nearly disappeared. I just saw a dissertation by a scholar by the name of Wang Tao. It's called The Spread and Development of Yangming Learning in Jiangxi and Zhejiang Provinces during the Qing Dynasty. So now, and I know this is happening in China too, we're seeing much more subtle historical research going on to give us a better understanding of the persistence of Wang Yangming's writings, their study, a reverence for him in different parts of China. And so I think we'll see how this picture changes. And as we know, during the late Ming, uh, there was a revival of interest in Wang Yangming. It's been attributed to trends in Japan, which we can get to. But now other scholars might be saying, there might have been internal developments at work here. So this is an interesting topic, and I expect to see a lot more work in the coming years on this issue of the status of Wang Yangming's school of mind or the Qing dynasty. That is certainly very interesting. I mean, given how prevalent his influence was in the Ming, I hardly think he would have disappeared overnight. There must have been some people still reading and studying him. But going beyond China, you just mentioned Japan, right? In Japan, in Tokugawa, Japan, Wyoming was huge. And Japanese have this so-called Yomegaku, which is the Japanese reading for Yaoming Xue. And that was very influential. So I was wondering why was he so popular in Japan as opposed to Korea, where he was very much vilified? I think if, if we step back to, say, the case of Tokugawa, Japan, and then the Chosan, the Korean kingdom, we can compare those. As far as the late 19th century, Wang Yangmingism becomes part of like nationalist movements, both in Meiji, Japan, and also independence movement, the independence movement in the case of Korea. And that's kind of a different topic and a very interesting one. But going back, I think the differences in reception are largely political in nature. Now, um, in both cases, whether Japan or Korea, Tokugawa, Japan, you're talking about 1600, 1860 or, or so, and then the Chosun dynasty from about 1400 to 1900, Chengju Neo-Confucianism did dominate. It's just that in Japan, it wasn't tied to an examination system that brought people into officialdom. So rigorously establishing a political orthodoxy was less important. And I could just run over this quickly. I'm just looking at the timeline here, but let me see. I think it's well known, like the 7th and 8th centuries, that Japan adopted a lot of ideas from China. Embassies were sent over to Suihong, China, for the purpose of gathering information, reforming the Japanese court. And Confucian classics were part of that. 
And the court aristocrats in Japan would learn to read and write Chinese. And then during the medieval age, 11th to 16th century, the aristocrats maintained this learning. And then Buddhist scholars who would go over to China would also bring back Confucian texts. And they brought like Juicy's writings back, the learning of the ways. When the House of Tokugawa came to power in 1600, they subdued the other feudal lords at the end of the war in state spirit and reunified Japan, taking the title of shogun, establishing the Tokugawa shogunate. They established this relatively stable regime, okay, until the major restoration came about in the 19th century. And it was governed by a hereditary samurai estate, okay, so that there's this kind of balance of power between the shogun and uh, his government, the daimyo, or the lords of the great clans in their own domains. There were about 281 point in time. Now, at no point in time did the shogun or daimyo establish a kind of examination system that became the basis of recruitment into the upper ranks of their government. So this, the samurai status was largely hereditary. The founding shogun, Ieyasu, on top of that, he legitimated his government by all kinds of means. Along Buddhist lines, he like, claimed to be an avatar of Yakushi, the Buddha of healing. Along Shinto lines, after his death and burial at Nippo Shrine, that's just north of Edo, he became a Shinto deity protecting the nation. For Confucianism, Ieyasu and the political elite saw the advantage of introducing education for the samurai in peaceful times, inculcating literacy, ritual etiquette. Neo-Confucianism, as Juicy presented, presents a, a pretty complete system to sort of cement a social order. And then backs it up with the metaphysics. So the first Tokugawa shogun, he patronized Neo-Confucian advisors. His grandson, Iemitsu, allowed them to establish a school in Edo. The domain of lords followed this pattern, too. And private academies proliferate. Confucian educators hence become a part of the elite ruling establishment. They're like beacons of scholarship and morality. But they never really had much power. They're marginal. Now, Chengdu Neo-Confucianism dominates in these schools. But these Ruists, uh, these Confucians, uh, they were diverse in their commitment. Some did take a particular interest in Wang Yangming. Japanese scholarship identifies a, a couple dozen that belonged to the Yomei Gaku, the, Yangming, the, the Wang Yangming school. In general, they were strongly attracted to the simplification of Neo-Confucianism, which directs us to moral introspection, to finding this like innate or indwelling divine light that allows us to transcend our ego and our fears. And also, they, they appreciated his stress on action, acting on that knowledge. So I, I think the Wang Yangming scholars, or I should say the scholars that are attracted to his ideas in Japan, they were quite independent-minded. They were syncretic. But actually, I don't think it really becomes a major school. There's not like these consistent teacher-student lineages that emerge. But yet, he was not like excluded in any way, and his ideas always held a certain popularity. Now, Korea, the situation is entirely different. As early as the 1520s, a Korean envoy brought back an edition of Wang Yangming's what's called this record of practice, the Chuanxi Loop, back to Korea. And in succeeding decades, more information about him and his school of mind found its way back to Seoul, of course, where you have the capital. So during the reigns of two kings, Myung and Senjo, this is about 1540s to 1600, the Chosun scholars debate and discuss his ideas at the court. But for the most part, they're condemned, okay? Eventually, the school of mind becomes almost like a kind of heresy. It was really risky to vocally express support for Wang Yangming's ideas. I mean, one of the most influential scholars, Yi Huang, wrote a piece in 1566 called Disputing the Record of Practice. His criticism appears to have been shared by other orthodox, juicy scholars. He claimed that Wang Yangming's ideas were Buddhistic. 
They deny the existence of an objective moral order. They give too much authority to the individual subjective moral sense. So in fact, what's going on here is that when Wang Yangming's ideas come over to Chosan, Korea, actually it was already being criticized in China. That's one thing. And it appeared to these scholars that, well, this might undermine moral authority. So influential Confucians at the court remained true to Chengju Neo Confucianism and rejected this. The problem is that unlike what was the case for Japan, where the political structure is somewhat decentralized, you have this hereditary warrior state whose power is legitimated along several different lines. Chosang Korea, the literati were the dominant social class, and their fundamental worldview was shaped by Neo-Confucian doctrine. Now, Neo-Confucianism was already important by the late Kodio dynasty, and Buddhism was coming under attack and going into decline. Early Chosang rulers came to power with the support of Neo-Confucians. They actually kind of designed the early Chosang's administrative structure. Now, part of that design included making an examination system as the most important route to office. So Ruist academic training or Confucian academic training became necessary for rising through the exams and into office. And educational organs were established, like there were four schools established in Seoul. There are schools established in each county. Private academies eventually pop up. The whole point is that in Chosan, Korea, politically speaking, we have a more overtly Confucian state. Neo-Confucian literati eventually become dominant. So orthodoxy is much more critical, politically speaking, and they remain faithful to Juicy. It's just one of these things that Wang Yangming's ideas came over later on. Some scholars just vigorously criticized it, like Yi Huang, these influential ones. Now, there were a few scholars during the Chosan that were attracted to Wang Yangming's ideas. The most famous is Zhong Jidu or, or Hegak. Edward Chong recently published a book about him and Wang Yangmingism in Korea. So there's new research going on here about how his ideas were subtly present and important to a number of different scholars, but it was risky to be vocal about that. I heard you had looked into this a bit yourself, Korea. I'm curious what your sort of understanding Yeah, essentially it's the same as what you said, right? I think by the 16th century, the Chengdu school of Neo-Confucianism is pretty much a state orthodoxy in Korea, more so than in China, actually. It's actually a state religion in the Chosan. And the Chosan scholars really saw themselves as the true inheritors of the Song Neo-Confucian tradition, and they did not like Wang Yangming at all. I, I read some of these Korean literati, their BG, when they go to China and they were just shocked that Wang Yangming is in the Confucian temple. They talk to these Ming students and they're disappointed that they're learning Wang Yangming and not Zhu Xi. And so in that regard, I think they saw themselves as being superior to the Chinese intellectuals because they were most closely adhered to Zhu Xi. Inheritors of, right. Yeah, yeah so. that sounds absolutely correct. Whereas in Japan, because of Wyoming's ideals of innate knowledge and then the unity of mind and action kind of speaks more to their samurai ethic that appeals to the warriors. And especially, I think, by the late Tokugawa, early Meiji, people like Saigo Takamori, a lot of these reformers were influenced by Wyomingism. Yeah, yeah, there's certainly a line of illustrious Wyoming teachers that belong to the Tokugawa period. And it's said that now, this kind of idea gets from the late 19th, early 20th century. There's some nationalists in Japan, you know, Tetsujiro, and I can't remember his name clearly. Uh, but there's a number of different nationalists to promote Wang Yangmingism, and they write biographies of him and also people who are influenced by him uh, during the period of the Meiji Restoration, like the individuals like Yoshida showing and Saigo Takamori and so on. And although they probably 
I, I'm not going to say Wang Yangming was the one sort of person that influenced. There were multiple influences work there. They're definitely very familiar with his ideas, and like you said, his emphasis on acting on your uh, moral knowledge was an important uh, dimension of their understanding of him. So, as a concluding question, how is Wang Yangming viewed in China and perhaps Taiwan today? I know Chen Kai-shek was a big fan of Wang Yangming. There's a Yangming Shan in Taiwan, and there's various Wang Yangming roads in, in Taiwan. How is he viewed in China today? So you mean in just like recent decades or recent years or yeah, I guess in recent years. Obviously, during the Mao period, this kind of old right. right stuff is not really <laughs> tolerated. But now, how has the the view of Wyoming shifted? I see. Yeah, you you've hit on the key points here. So to understand what has happened in China today with Wang Yangmi, we have to step back to the 20th century,、um, in particular to Deng Xiaoping's policy of reform and opening. Okay, so this dates to the late 1970s, right? 1978, 1979, or so. Now, in general, for scholarship on Wang Yangming, academics will emphasize the stark contrast between the Maoist era and the 1980s. So, after the PRC was established in 49 and during the Mao years, traditional culture was generally condemned. Confucianism was attacked, and of course, that included the Ming Confucian Wang Yangming. Now, from a Marxist perspective, we should be a representative of the ruling class, right? The feudal ruling class. And the peoples against whom he directed his military campaigns were regarded as like peasants or ethnic minorities. So, from the perspective of class analysis, was rather rigid during the Mao years. Wang was repudiated. He was like labeled a butcher of oppressed peoples. Of course, in Taiwan and Hong Kong, the situation was entirely different. The modern new Confucians, like Tang Junyi, Mao Zongshan. Among others, were claiming that Ming Confucianism held at the school of mind held the key to understanding what was most spiritual in Chinese civilization. Wang Yangming's reflection on the nature of the mind and, and, and so on. So they wrote and published a great deal about him, and along with Su Fu Guan, Zhang Du, and my other intellectuals in the 1950s, they even issued a manifesto proclaiming that the learning of mind and nature could provide an antidote to the ills of modern times. Now you come back to the PRC in the '80s, and the atmosphere for conducting pure scholarship improved. Okay, this kind of dogmatic politicization, this labeling, were relaxed. The government supported the study of Confucianism, and so research institutes were established, study societies, historical sites start to be restored, local, national, and international conferences are held, funding is provided for scholarship, and that includes Wang Yangming. Now, in the '80s, much of this happened in Zhejiang because this province was his home province. Two places there, Yuyao and Chaoxing,、uh, were his hometowns. But also in Guizhou, which is the province where he supposedly had this like life-changing enlightenment that I mentioned before, and elaborated some of his first tenets, like the unity of knowledge of action, and so on. So, for example, in '80 and '81, there's these international conferences on Song and Ming philosophy by the Zhejiang Academy of Social Sciences. At the time, it was called the Research Institute for the Social Sciences. And two prominent academics there, Shun Shanhong and Wang Fengxian, distributed a monograph titled "Research on the Philosophy of Wang Yangming." And this is interesting because in it they affirm that he's a far-sighted individual. He had put forward this theory that we're all sages, that we intrinsically possess knowledge of right and wrong, and that basically his ideas promote notions of human equality, and that they're amenable to basically liberal tradition. Wang Yangming could serve as a native resource in that regard. So this is a very different time now, right? It's a little bit more open atmosphere. 
1989, that same academy and Jijian worked together with a Japanese scholar by the name of Okada Takehiko. He had taught at Kyushu University and they restored Wang Yangming's tomb. Uh, it had been damaged during World War II. It's located at the foothills of the Xianxiao Mountains in Shaoxing. Now, more recently, it's been even further renovated. This big park, the Yangming Park that sits in front of it. This big ceremony was held there in 2018 to celebrate the opening of it. Similar events from the 80s to the present have happened in Guizhou, okay, Guiyang, capital, and up there in Xiuwen County, where the Longchong Postal Station is located. Conference has been held there. He stayed in a cave there. He built a hut. Uh, well, locals helped him build that hut. So I would say that the people of Silwan County, probably where, where all this happened, are quite proud of this history. Now, in 1999, the People's Government of Guayong funded restoration of this area. And so now there's a park there, a statuary display and a museum. All of this has only been further developed since that time. And now it's a great place to visit, to be honest. There's this giant statue of Guayong that towers over the city. And since the 2000s, similar things have happened any place he's been. Yu Yao and Shaoxing, you find the same thing, his hometown. In three counties he established down there in, in the, the Nangan, as Grand Quarter, the Nangan region, that is southern Jiangxi. Heping and Guangdong, Pinghun, Fujian, Chongyin, Jiangxi. They now all have Wang Yangming parks, statuary, museums. They're beautiful sites. They're worth a visit. Of course, aside from celebrating history and promoting tourism, another reason the government fund these projects is educational in nature. So K through 12 students might be brought there to study Wang Yangming. It's an exemplar, right? Learn about his tenets, extending your good conscience. So this has a significant moral component to the curriculum. And it's a good thing as such. Civil servants might be expected to go there and learn from Wang Yangming. Now, just my last point. These kinds of activities have burgeoned over the last few years, and there's a very clear reason for this, and that is President Xi Jinping. He's expressed a fondness for the Ming Dynasty Confucian and scholar official. He even said, Wang Yangming's philosophy of mind truly is the quintessence of China's traditional culture. It is also one of the starting points for boosting the cultural self-confidence of the Chinese people. So actually, close observers follow his kind of list of people in ancient China that'll talk about periodically. He talks about Confucius too, right? So close observers have noticed he periodically talks about the unity of knowledge and action, for example. So he's linked Wang Yangming to the goal of national rejuvenation. And so this kind of has spawned a lot of activity. Businesses are like open like academies, like the Wang Yangming Philosophy of Academy. They offer like training sessions on his ideas how to improve your business practices, bring success. Conferences bring people together from diverse sectors of society. Bookstores have these like trade type publications that talk about his life and philosophy in a way that's more accessible to broader audiences. So that I think is some of the things that have been going on since the 1980s. I remember we were on a panel together in the AAS for uh, 2019 and you showed these pictures of these huge statues and memorials that were being built in China for Wyoming just in, in this past decade alone. Uh, so I think it's really interesting to see how he is brought up again today in a, in a different political context and atmosphere and used by China's President Xi Jinping for China's rejuvenation. Yeah, of course, Confucianism, as we've talked about for the last hour, has always been closely tied to the state. And so this kind of revival of young Ming learning in the context of these kinds of goals on the part uh the party in China maybe makes sense in that regard. I think that Wang Yangming can be interpreted in two ways. It's quite clear that 
Wang Yangming scholars see that his ideas of are each having this innate potential for sagehood. They really like to talk about it today, even with these things going on. He could also be interpreted in a more authoritarian way, I think, kind of along the lines that he is being interpreted in China today by the government. Okay, so there are these different facets to Wang Yangming, and that in itself, it makes for a lively sort of discussion, I think. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And I think there's a lot more for scholars to look into regarding Wang Yangming. But thank you, Professor Israel, for taking the time to come to the show. I know Wang Yangming is a very famous figure in China. He's very well known to China and perhaps to people in Japan and Korea as well. But in the West, like we talked about in the beginning, he's relatively unknown. So I really appreciate you taking the time and explaining to our listeners just who Wang Yangming was and, and why he's so influential. Well, thank you very much. I've appreciated it. It's been my honor to be on your uh, podcast, on your show. And um, great. Thanks so much. Well, thank you. And so that concludes our interview for today. Thank you for listening to the Chinese History Podcast. All right. Take care. Thanks again.